Hello, welcome to the third third episode? Third episode of Vertigo Voices, uh, recording from the hellfire landscape of the West Coast United States. <laughs> we hope everyone out there is being safe and uh, breathing as well as you can, if you just happen to be on this side of the country. Otherwise, don't come on this side of the country. You know, there's a pandemic going on too. Stay at home. Be well. So today we're going to be talking about the first volume of Sandman called Preludes and Nocturnes, uh, written by Neil Gaiman, art by a few different people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you didn't ask me about our theme. Oh yeah, I forgot. Did, I, <laughs> do, we even, did, you, did you have one? I've been working on something on the harpsichord. It'd be very oh, lyrical. harpsichord. Well, all right. Uh, yeah, so written by Neil Gaiman, art by Sam Keith. Mike Dringenberg, Malcolm Jones III, and uh, cover art always by Dave McKean. Yeah, great, great story. That's it. The <laughs> end. <laughs> Go read it. You think you should. <laughs> One thing that I thought was funny looking into this, I've only ever read this as a collected series, as Preludes and Nocturnes. And apparently the first seven issues are actually called More Than Rubies. It's like the name of that story. And then the eighth, Sound of Her Wings, is like the epilogue to that. Oh. And I did not know that. So. Neither did I. <laughs> Although it ties in with the theme very well. Yeah. So, okay, uh, one thing I forgot to uh, talk about last week that I guess we can uh, integrate this week as well and retroactively do it from last week's. I, I forgot to do the rating system. Remember? I, I said I had a rating system planned. So, the rating system uh, that I think we should do is three tiered. Good, okay, bad, and that's vertigo, <laughs> vertislow, <laughs> and vertistop. <laughs> I like. Okay. So, uh, so because of that, so going back to Lovecraft, was that a vertistop, a vertislow, or a vertigo? It was a vertigo for me. I really appreciated the artwork and the uh, the take on that alternate reality of. Lovecraft's biography. I would read it again. Yeah, I think it was a vertigo. I've read it a couple times now. I enjoyed it. But anyway, going back to Sandman. So it was first published in 88, which, looking back, like, that's, that's a long-ass time ago. <laughs> and yet it feels like the, the kind of the idea, or not the idea, kind of the uh, vibe of the 80s permeated in the story. You know, it feels very modern of the time, but it also feels a bit timeless. Absolutely. It doesn't feel dated, mm -hmm. which is weird to me, that it can be that anchored to a specific time period, but also feel that unmoored. Well, I just want to have a little bit of fun with this, because in 88, we were both four. I think so. Well, I was born in 83, so I, it depends. <laughs> depends. Depends on the month, but yeah. Four or five. Yeah. We were still crawling around in the sandbox. Yeah, exactly. But exactly, there's things in this book, some of the art, like you were saying, it's very much of its time, but the stories are universal. Yeah. And for any newbies out there who are just coming to this, I, I think that if you enjoy sci-fi and fantasy and you still don't see yourself as reading comic books, then Sandman is the place to jump in. Yeah, while it is in the wider DC universe, almost none of that knowledge is needed. Mm -hmm. you know, like there's in the first issue, there's a reference to uh, Wesley Dodds, and there's you know, the Justice League show up, but 
if you don't know who they are, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, you, you just need to know that superheroes exist. Superhero. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about, I'm curious in how uh, you first came to Sandman. What, you know, Preludes and Nocturnes was mm-hmm. the first thing you read? Well, yeah, we talked about it in the first episode. Yes. Found it at the library. <laughs> yes. Tell me again. Like, give, give a little bit of a twist on it in terms of... of how this character stuck with you? Yeah. Well, like I said, I before I, I discovered it at my local library, the world famous uh, Godzilla chewing gum and Ham's beer library mm-hmm. in yeah. Walla Walla. <laughs> um, and what gripped me right away was just the mythology of the storytelling. Like it, it dives so much into almost immediately. It dives into like Greek myths with the. Uh, the three weird sisters <laughs> and the idea of you know dreams and nightmares and and dreams being their own space and how what's what's, it, what's really interesting to me also is that the idea of the endless and their station in the universe isn't spelled out at the beginning like a, a lesser story would have like a wall of text at the beginning like thousands of years ago <laughs> the endless career you know blah 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 whatever but but to have the the story naturally fill itself out through characterization and interactions and stuff. And, you know, you don't know anything about Dream's family other than he's related to death in the first issue. And then it, it builds from there. I just, I, the, the way that it world builds is uh, like second to none. Very intriguing. Draws you right in. So if you can't guess already, we think it's a vertigo. Oh yeah, definitely vertigo. But so, so what's, the, what's the plot? What's this about? Tell me. All right. The book report. So we start off in 1916. There is a cult. And Roderick Burgess, kind of in the vein of Aleister Crowley, is trying to bring together the final pieces of this spell to summon death. Long story short, shit goes sideways, and he ends up summoning Dream, death's little brother. The rest of this series, one through eight, is basically a quest tale of Dream being a prisoner of Roderick Burgess and this order, and then escaping one day and getting back his armaments, the tools of his trade, which happened to be a bag of sand, a powerful ruby, and a helmet made from the bones of a god. And we go with him on the quest to get all of these pieces back so he can once again be fully empowered to be the ruler of the Dream world that he is. It's a lot of fun. Quite a zany road trip. It's interesting to me that this first volume is so much of a fetch quest. You see him going, oh, I need to get this, so I'll go here to get that. Whereas the rest of the series doesn't adhere to that A to B to C storyline, like, at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, there's, a, there's one issue that takes place over hundreds of years while Dream is hanging out with an immortal guy. There's one issue that follows around a Roman emperor. <laughs> There's that one issue about the emperor of America. Was that his name? The old crazy guy? Yeah. yeah he lives well, in San Francisco. Uh, anyway, he was a real guy. <laughs> that, that wasn't in this volume, but that's far later. But anyway, the way the story evolves like, makes the first volume look almost quaint. <laughs> but, at the, but at the same time, the first volume is such a perfect starting point for the rest of the series. Even though it looks quaint by comparison, it evolves so perfectly that the first volume couldn't be anything else but this. Exactly. It's an excellent introduction to the character, and it just kind of opens you to this strange new world you're about to explore. 
so that when those, because there, like you said, there's a lot of issues that he's almost not in them, mm-hmm. or he makes cameos. And correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Sandman one of the first major comics not to have the protagonist on the cover? I have no idea. <laughs> I think so. I remember um, reading an interview with uh, Vertigo editor Karen Berger, and uh, she was saying that um, both Dave McKean and Neil Gaiman kind of came up with the idea that, you know, just let Dave McKean do his extraordinary, unusual art, and he didn't want to do the Sandman for every cover, mm-hmm. which she said at the time was a big deal. Yeah, makes sense. In the first issue, just going back, Dream is imprisoned in uh, the town of Witchcross in England. Within Witchcross is a mansion called Fawny Rig, which apparently Neil Gaiman said within the story was named, like it was named Fawny Rig by Joanna Constantine, who is John Constantine's ancestor, shows up in a, a later volume of Sandman. I thought that was funny. Uh, she apparently it, named it based on a confidence game in which an item is sold for less than what it's supposedly worth, worth but for much more than its actual value. Funny rig. Yeah, which that's about the most Neil Gaiman thing I could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, now that you mention it. Uh, funny rig also shows up in uh, one shot comic called Sandman Midnight Theater that takes place during the uh, series Mystery Theater, and it's all about Wesley Dodds, the Sandman in the 1930s, going to England to find his girlfriend, Diane. She's, like, over there. Uh, they break up for a while. She goes to England. He goes to get her. When, when, they, when they get together there, they spend the night at Fawny Rig. Wesley has a dream where he meets Dream. <laughs> <laughs> And then Funny Rig also shows up in a miniseries called Sandman Love Street that's set in the 1960s, and it's all about a young teenage John Constantine uh, and a group of hippies traveling around England, and they end up going to Funny Rig and getting into some shenanigans there. And John sees like a vision of Dream that was during his imprisonment. Characters already intertwined. Yeah. I have no idea. That's another thing that we should point out is that when he mentioned that Burgess was trying to summon death and got Dream instead, he had him captured for like 70 years. Yes. <laughs> and it's one of the things I love about that is, is it's just Dream like naked in this sphere, this uh, clear globe, and he just sits there for 70 years, just sits there staring at his guards, waiting for one of them to slip up and fall asleep and, and break the seal so that he can get just a modicum of power to get out. And I just love how that informs his character later. That idea of just 70 years of just anger and resentment (laughs) building. (laughs) Stoking the largest grudge. Which then brings me to the point of when he does get out, because it had been so long, the original person that captured him, Roderick Burgess, who, again, was was trying to capture death so that he could become immortal. But getting Dream instead, he never got a chance to become immortal and dies. Uh, so then his son, Alex, takes over Fawny Rig and Dream's imprisonment. So then when Dream comes out of it, he he isn't able to get his revenge on the person that captured him. So he takes it out on Alex instead by just forcing him into a nightmare where he's constantly waking up from a nightmare. <laughs> and that like constant waking, like, I think his nurse comes into his room or something. And then he, like, watches her face melt off. Yeah. And then he wakes up. Yeah, yeah. And then he wakes up, and then he, like, right into another nightmare. And it's just that endless cycle. Man, that, that's 
talking about fate worse than death. That's fucking <laughs> intense. <laughs> well, if you've ever had one of those nightmares where it is so intense and then you think you wake up, or you do wake up actually, and then you fall right back to sleep and fall right back into yeah. the nightmare. It's like you never just like fall right back into sleep and go into the good dreams. In that vein, like talking about him being imprisoned for 70 years, when you think about it, it's kind of an unusual way to introduce your main character. Yeah. Um, because he's he's a prisoner right off the bat. Yeah. He doesn't say anything for years and years. I think the very first word he says is, I can't remember whether it's Roderick or his son Alex, or like, just talk to us, talk to us. Like, you could teach us so much. And he's yeah. basically like, no. Yeah. And that's it. And he's this pale, skinny guy with a Patty Smith haircut yeah. and man of very few words. He really doesn't have, like, a, a lawn of badassery until later on in the series when we start to see what he's really capable of and who he really is. Yeah, it's it's funny how little he does in the first issue. Right. You know, this grand introduction of this bold new comic series has the main character sitting behind glass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you said, just waiting. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that he never really he never even gets his revenge because he takes it out on the son of Roderick, who captured him, who really doesn't have any say in this. <laughs> when, uh, when Sandman was captured, or Dream was captured, he was a kid. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'm just doing what Dad told me to do. It's interesting to me that Dream's reaction is so emotional. You know, like, well, I can't get my revenge on this guy, so I'll take it out on you instead. <laughs> and, uh, and then later in the series, how he comes back to that decision, because it's been weighing on him, and you see that character evolve to the point where he realizes he shouldn't have done that. And he goes back and takes away the nightmare from Roderick, or from Alex, and lets him just live out his remaining years in peace. And that was, that's an interesting, uh, interesting evolution of the character that you wouldn't see in a lot of other stories. It's once the revenge is done... Wipe your hands of it and move on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or it's a happy ending because yeah. the bad guy was... Yeah, running. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is a, a different take on it. And it is, like you said, it's interesting to watch the character actually evolve and get empathy. Yeah. So that was, what, the first couple issues? He breaks out in the first... It is in the first, yes. Yeah, the, the Sleep of the Just yeah. is the first issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it's on to imperfect oh yeah so he yeah then he goes back to the dreaming and finds that it's all in disrepair and am i am i the only one that thinks this tower looks like a big dick (laughs) (laughs) i mean his castle is obviously very phallic but it's like it's more than just it's more than just like a curved cylinder like it's got a head it's got a tip it's got (laughs) veins (laughs) like that's <laughs> well, now that you mention it, I won't be able to get it out of my head. But um, <laughs> this is new information. Like, seriously. <laughs> well, I did thought it looked a little odd, but <laughs> but <laughs> since we're talking about that, um, I meant to ask you because for those of you who don't know, and for me, this was a learning experience as well. Uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman is based on a character created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. This is this goes all the way back to to uh, Wesley Dodd Sandman in the 1930s. You know, the, I don't even remember who created him. Maybe Gardner Fox, but every Sandman since then, the DC owns has just been a deviation of that original Sandman. I, I asked because, um, and I I don't know if 
I'm just drawing lines here. I don't know if I'm drawing the correct lines. But apparently, had Kirby and Simon's character, Sandman, lived in a place called the Dream Dome. Mm-hmm. And Which shows up in the next volume. Okay. And I'm curious, does that look anything like uh, Dream's palace in Imperfect Host? I don't believe so. Okay. Um, I think, again, in... Doll's house, you see the Dream Dome. I think that's essentially what it looked like in Kirby's. And the idea is that Brute and Glob, those two nightmares that escape the dreaming during Dream's exile, create their own little tiny dreaming (laughs) in this little boy's mind, and that's the Dream Dome. So then the Penis Palace was totally Keith's and Darren Burge's idea. (laughs) I'm sure Neil Gaiman had some input, too. I just want to see the the like this script page where it's like exterior continuous the dreaming dream walks up to his palace then parentheses giant dick um, <laughs> <laughs> talks to Lucian it's like it's no big deal there's a lot of room for interpretation there <laughs> so anyway Lucian is based on a character from blah 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 and make sure the palace is like a giant dick and um, then he talks to Cain and Abel. <laughs> Is it just me, or is there a lot of pink in this book? Yeah, there is, but I, I, I mean... It's I, not bad, it's just... No, but I, I think later volumes, the color palette goes crazy. You know, like, every, every issue and or volume has its own kind of style, and every artist brings their own palette to it. But this first volume, like, the color palette is very simple, and I think that's probably a printing issue. Like, this was a new book uh, from a a relatively untested writer, so they probably just didn't spend that much money on the color, and so it's a lot of, like, four-panel stuff. That's not the right word, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like a lot of simple coloring. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was Sandman originally black and white, and color was added later? No, No, it's always always been color. DC has pretty much always done color comics. It's a lot of the, like, British publishers and small smaller publishers that didn't. So one, one thing that was interesting to me about him going back to the Dreaming is when he meets the inhabitants of, of the Dreaming, they're almost all existing characters. Like Cain and Abel, obviously based on the biblical Cain and Abel, but those are actually characters from DC's comics in the 70s. They, they were both hosts of different comic series, the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets. Cain was the host of House of Mystery, and Abel was the host of House of Secrets, and they were just horror anthology stories, like Tales from the Crypt. Okay. And Gaiman brought those characters into the Dreaming and brought the House of Secrets and Mystery as well. And same with Lucian. Lucian is the librarian of the Dreaming, and the keeper of all the stories, but he is based on an existing DC character as well. And I can't remember what book he was in, but it w- he didn't have many appearances and it was akin to Cain and Abel, where I think he was—he just told stories. Well, it's neat how Gaiman incorporated all of that. Yeah. Even uh, Matthew, the Raven, who I don't think is in this volume, he is a character from Swamp Thing. Oh. His name is Matthew Cable, and he was the husband of Abby Cable, a.k.a. Abby Arcane, who becomes Swamp Thing's wife. Uh, he dies in a car accident caused by the villain, and... He gets knocked out, and he is in the dreaming when he dies. And that's why his mind stays there. 
and uh, becomes uh, Dream's sidekick. I did not know that. Learning all sorts of new things today. Isn't it Andy Andy Circus? I think plays him in the new Audible. Yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, that's a good good choice. Looking forward to listening to that. Yeah, me too. So, okay, the next one: Dream a Dream, Dream a Little Dream of Me, which is the issue where he starts his quest to regain his regalia. In this one, he meets up with John Constantine, who he discovers used to have his bag of sand. And John kind of helps him find it now. The sand fell into the hands of an ex-girlfriend of John's. Going back to our first episode when you were talking about John Constantine and and, uh, your affinity for the character and his personality, there's a couple great moments in there where you're talking about his tendencies to get in dysfunctional relationships all the time. Mm -hmm. Like when they're looking for Dream's bag of sand and he stumbles across that picture of uh, him and Rachel and he goes, oh, I think I know where your bag is. And as they're traveling to retrieve the bag, he's like thinking to himself and basically this, this woman just sounds like from the way he talks about her, she was this maladjusted drug addict Mm -hmm. who stole all this stuff and pawned it off for drugs and, was just made his life incredibly melodramatic. And like in the book, he refers to her as a stupid bitch. And then he pauses and he's like, sometimes I still miss her. (laughs) (laughs) It's John. Yeah. Yeah. And then when they get there, this is where it really starts to lean into like a horror comic for me. And I think maybe this is Sam Keith's art. So correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Like they go to the house to retrieve the bag. Like, the electricity has been cut off. There's six months worth of mail piled up behind the door. They go upstairs and they go into the bedroom and John like switches on the light. He's like, yeah. ew, what is this? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it looks like a, like a, the cocoon from Alien. Like it does. The, the just viscera and goo like creeping up the wall. And it's sentient goo. Yeah. And the theory is what? It's her dad? Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, what's his name? Uh, Dream, I think, says something like, oh, that's that's a person. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you do start to see in this one, I think you start to see, well, for lack of a better word, the reverence that he inspires in those who know who he is. Yeah. Like You see that a little bit earlier in Imperfect Host with Cain and Abel because they know who he is. Lucian knows who he is. But, like, the sentient jelly thing that's covering the walls... At first, they don't recognize him, and they're just trying to keep... It's just trying to keep Morpheus and John away from Rachel. And then as soon as, like, he steps forward and is like, cut the shit out, yeah. all of a sudden... I really... I don't know. It's just... It's so creepy. That, Please don't hurt us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't chastise. It's really unsettling. And then, of course, like, the big reveal when they open yeah. the door, and there she is. Yeah, man. That, it, that, it reminds me of that scene in Seven with the... Uh... The skinny dude yeah. is, like, chained to the bed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what sin was that? Um, a little bit of deviation here. I don't here, remember. But... It's been too long since I've seen that movie. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. But I feel like I feel like Fincher had to have read that issue when he was making six, Seven. Because that, that's, like, a, just a really similar vibe and setting and scene and all that. And Anyway, yeah, it was intense. But I, I also like the way the story concludes of how uh, Morpheus kind of eases her suffering gives her that perfect dream that she can live in after she dies like you alluded to earlier like dream he's like i've got okay we've got my sand let's go and john is the one who's like no you like you can't leave her hold on a second (laughs) (laughs) like do something and so he's like okay go outside and then yes like her last dream before she dies is you know she's 
looks beautiful again. She's healthy. She meets up with John, and they go off into the sunset, yeah. like, literally. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I guess you could say a prelude, ha ha ha, to um, Dream's growth as a character, but yeah. still, like, just even in that moment, he's just all about the yeah. mission. Yeah, very single-minded, and it, it's interesting that John is the uh, character with humanity in that scene. Right. Because <laughs> yeah, he meets somebody that's more inhuman than him, or more, more not, not selfish, but more... Apathetic? Yeah, more apathetic than him. It's a, it was a very, very touching, moving, freaky edition. Which then leads to Dream retrieving his helm, is that the next? Yeah, his helm. Yes. Where he goes to hell in the next issue. Issue four is called A Hope in Hell, where he finds that a demon named, I can't remember, Touch the Sea. I cannot pronounce it. It's like ch ch Chacharon? When I was Chacharon? a kid, I always called him Chorizo. Chorizo. <laughs> <laughs> Gets the point across. Yeah. But anyway, he goes to hell to get his helm from this demon, ends up facing down Lucifer, who I think I mentioned this before when I first read this, I thought Lucifer was a woman, just because of that very soft David Bowie-esque look they give him. Absolutely. Right there, so in the first big reveal of Lucifer with his wild hair, that looks more like Tilda Swinton than... Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I was struck by that, too. I was like, oh my god. Like In the Constantine movie, it, you could swap Lucifer and Gabriel. Have Peter Stormare play Gabriel and Tilda Swinton play Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> and it would work. Yeah. Someone on YouTube, I can't remember who, I agree with you, I think it looks more like Tilda Swinton, but it made me laugh. They're like, yeah, Lucifer basically looks like Kate Blanchett playing Bob Dylan, and mm. I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Dylan hair. Absolutely. What's this demon's name? I... Charonzon. 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 That's how I'm going to pronounce it anyway. This is one of those really well-regarded issues. I remember first being introduced to this storyline because of an issue of Wizard Magazine back in the mid to late 90s. They had the top 25 most memorable moments in comics. And I've looked up this list just now to try to find where it was. Dream leaving hell in this issue was number 15 on their list. And it's funny to look at this list from the mid-90s and see what was considered you know, the most memorable moments in comics. One of them is Hal Jordan destroying the Green Lantern Corps. That's been retconned to death now, so nobody even remembers that or cares about it. But back in the 90s, like that was a big fucking deal. This hero who'd been around for 50 years just murdered a bunch of Green Lanterns and stole their rings, went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's some others like, like Flash dying and Crisis of Infinite Earths. That's always going to be a classic moment. Cap defying Thanos. Back then, that was a big comic moment, but now that's just a huge pop culture moment. Right. Because like, that's basically the end of Avengers Endgame. <laughs> Nowadays, I'm sure way more people know it because of Chris Evans and Josh Brolin than, uh, than the comic book. And then there's others like, oh yeah, uh, number eight, Cap decapitates barren blood. Captain America hacks off a vampire's head with, the, with his shield. I don't think anyone remembers that moment. And that is one above Batgirl getting crippled. <laughs> right! <laughs> Which is like one of the most viscerally well-known comic moments of all time. Everyone remembers that moment. And yet, Cap Decapitates Baron Blood is more important in this list. <laughs> I'm not sure how, but 
anyone out there who's a longtime fan of Baron Blood and is like, well, yeah. let me explain to you, please do. The one thing that's funny to me is both three and four are both from the Phoenix saga. Number three is Phoenix killing herself, and number four is Wolverine uh, emerging from the sewer after fight with the uh, Hellfire Club. Both of those are interesting moments, but I feel like you should have just done one or the other. Yeah, I'm not sure. Which one would you pick? I don't know, because Jean dying was a huge deal in the comic, but it's, it's not very, like, cinematic. You know, she just kind of fades away. <laughs> like, there's not, there's not much to it in the way they show it. Um, whereas Wolverine climbing out of the sewer, that image of his arm, like, cocked in front of him, like he's getting ready to slash somebody to death, that, that was a huge visual moment for the medium. So I don't know. It's story versus visuals. This yeah. <laughs> is the great comic debate, so I don't know. But then number one and two, number one, or sorry, number two is the conclusion of uh, Watchmen with Ozymandias being revealed to be the villain and that he'd already enacted his doomsday plan. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, if you haven't read Watchmen, don't listen to this. Right. <laughs> it's been out for how long now? Yeah, nah, that's that's not fair. But if you, uh, if you if you haven't read Watchmen by now, then probably just don't read it. It's it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't need to. Uh, and then number one is Batman defeats Superman in uh, Dark Knight Returns, which is a good moment. I mentioned earlier. I don't really like that comic anymore. <laughs> I loved it when I first read it in high school, and it's. It's chilled on me over time. It's definitely an iconic moment, though, so I get it. But I just I don't have the emotional attachment to it that I used to. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. It is one of those moments that, you know, for me, coming up from a kid, reading the Batman and Superman comics, being like, no way! <laughs> but the actual comic itself, yes, it's still enjoyable, but, uh, well, we'll have to have another episode about that where we <laughs> branch into the politics behind the books. But speaking of characters, and this being on uh, Wizards' moments of mm -hmm. uh, great comic book writing, uh, talk to me a little bit about Etrigan. Etrigan. Gone, gone, form of man. Rise the demon Etrigan. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. Et Etrigan is a rhyming demon that Dream runs into when he's in hell. Um, it was a character created by Jack Kirby. Um, yeah, so he was, a, he was a DC character that this dude named Jason Blood who was cursed hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, I don't know, whenever, to become a demon. Like, he's, he's immortal. He's, a, he's just a demon, dude. And uh, he's uh, kind of a hero, kind of a villain, kind of, uh, I mean, I guess not necessarily a villain, but he can, he can be uh, duplicitous and uh, somewhat savage at times. But more often than not, he's on the side of the heroes. There's a really good episode of Batman the Animated Series where Batman teams up with Jason Blood, who then turns into Etrigan, and they fight Clarion, the Witch Boy, another uh, another mystical character in DC's stable. But anyway, yeah, I, I love the inclusion of Etrigan in that issue. And yeah, he, he's a rhyming demon, so almost everything he says has some sort of cadence and rhyme to it. I love the way he's drawn, too, here. He does look very, very fierce. Yeah. And speaking of, of which, uh, I noticed, and you probably have to, that throughout throughout the comics, like you see it in here a couple of times, like when he they go to, oh, help me out, John Martian. What? The, oh, Martian Manhunter? Ma Martian when they Manhunter. go to Justice League? Yes. 
when they go to the Justice League and Dream appears to Martian Manhunter. Oh, yeah. And when he appears to a former lover who he meets in, in hell, hell yeah. they all see him differently. Yeah, they see, they see whatever form their beliefs uh, have for, like, the, the King of Dreams. Uh, I always really liked that about the, the book, the, the kind of malleable cultural identity of someone like Dream. He, universal, again, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's interesting, too, how he Etrigan takes him into hell and how he talks about, uh, like, they come across that the stand of trees that talk mm-hmm. and sound like they're in pain. Dream mentions that, oh, the wood of suicides has changed since my last visit to hell. I remember it. It's a tiny grove. Yeah, it's a huge forest. <laughs> it is. It's, it's sad, and it's also just very well rendered. It's not like there's not a lot to look at on these panels. Well, I love the way he gets his helmet back, the, the battle of wills with the chorizo demon guy. Um, <laughs> Dream wins by thinking in a way that someone in hell wouldn't, wouldn't be able to comprehend. Yes. The idea of, of hope being such a, such a foreign but also essential aspect of being in hell. Exactly. And how that's the most powerful thing anyone down there can even comprehend. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a really epic moment. And that leads into, you know, at, at the end when he does win his helmet and he thanks the lords of hell for being so honorable and Lucifer yeah, is yeah. basically like, <laughs> what makes you think we're going to let you go? And he says that very same thing that, you know, it's like, I have all the power I need because everyone down here, you know, wouldn't be in hell if they couldn't dream of heaven. Yeah. He uses his wit. He uses um, feeling as opposed to you know, Morpheus just going down there and kicking ass and taking names. Like that, that unfilmed Sandman script from the 90s where he uh, <laughs> kicks ass and takes names. Yeah. <laughs> I remember reading a script review and there was some line in it where he's like, Behold, it is I, Sandman, Lord of Dreams, <laughs> who is going to break your neck. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all say that even that we are glad that that uh, never came to fruition. That particular script. <laughs> that issue, also the the hell issue, that um, also set up the status quo of the ruling class of hell in the DC universe. There's a triumvirate of Lucifer. Was it Lucifer? Azazel? Maybe another one. I can't. Beelzebub. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that so that carries over into Hellblazer and the the. Vertigo universe and really the larger DC universe and whole, and this was like the first time that that was uh, cemented. <laughs> that is kind of a funny part in this particular edition too, where you know again Dream is like, oh, what's changed in Hell? Not a lot, and then he's like, oh, a lot has changed. <laughs> you guys are triumphant now, <laughs> really. <laughs> Lays the groundwork for more good stuff to come. All right, on to the next one. Uh, passengers. Passengers. So it introduces Doctor Destiny. Reintroduces. He was a Justice League villain from the. 60s, 70s, something like that. And he was also on an episode of the Justice League animated series. So that was like the one Sandman character that was on that show. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, they, they introduced him in Arkham Asylum. You get to see uh, Scarecrow. And I think they mentioned Dr. Huntoon. Or they show him, maybe? I don't know, but that's a character from Hellblazer. I thought they did. But then when, he, when Dr. Destiny breaks out and then he holds the gun on that woman to drive him to... 
find his ruby. I mean, like, the whole scene of them in the car is so fucking tense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, well, and he just, he, the guy looks like hell. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what they're feeding him there in Arkham Asylum, but he, he looks like, he, the guy yeah. looks like death. Yeah. I think the idea was that the ruby eroded his body to that point. Because uh-huh. in the comics, Dr. Destiny always wore a blue cloak, and he had a Skeletor mask. Yeah. Almost. I mean... He looks like Skeletor. He looks almost exactly like Skeletor, (laughs) but with a big red ruby. So this retcons that ruby as to being dreams. I don't recall if that skull was supposed to be his face or if it was just a mask in the old days. Okay. And I feel like now it's supposed to be his face. But another interesting thing about that character is he was... Okay, this is going to be a deep dive of connections real quick. So, So, there was a TV show, Constantine. And on that show, one of the main characters was John's friend, Richie Simpson who's a character from the comics. He's one of the Newcastle crew, and he's one of John's old friends. In that show, Jeremy Davies plays Richie Simpson. Really? Yeah, you know Jeremy Davies. I don't know, he's been in a ton of stuff. But he reprised the role for an animated movie called Justice League Dark. It also had Matt Ryan, who plays Constantine in the TV show. He voiced Constantine in this movie. It's not connected to the show at all. But... Jeremy Davies plays Richie Simpson again. And I was like, oh, that's funny. In that animated series, Richie Simpson gets the Dreams Ruby and becomes Dr. Destiny. Richie Simpson becomes Dr. Destiny, again, voiced by Jeremy Davies. Cut to, I think, 2018. The CW had their big crossover with all their DC shows, like Arrow and, and Flash and all that. They had a big crossover called Elseworlds. And in that, Dr. Destiny played by Jeremy Davies, <laughs> gets the Book of Destiny. Instead of, instead of Dreams Ruby, he uses Destiny's book from Sandman. And he uses that book to like rewrite the universe. The funny thing to me is that Jeremy Davies played Richie Simpson, then he played Richie Simpson as Dr. Destiny, then he played Dr. Destiny in three <laughs> unconnected things. <laughs> right. He has a long history with the character. Yeah. I was kind of a deep dive. My goodness. Okay, anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the... Uh, oh, I think, excuse me, this is where um, Martian Manhunter makes yeah. his appearance. So when you meet Scott Free. Scott Free, yeah. Who is Mr. Miracle and Martian Manhunter. Back in the 80s, they were mainstays of the Justice League. Realistically, Martian Manhunter's kind of always been a mainstay of the Justice League until New 52. Maybe <laughs> some fucking Stormwatch or something? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, another aside. You probably already knew this. Silly trivia. But uh, after Scott Free and Morpheus meet up with Martian the Manhunter to find out where his ruby is, Martian the Manhunter grabs Scott and like, hey, let's go to the kitchen and eat some Oreos. Apparently, I think it was... Uh, whoever owns Oreos. Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up. That's funny. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, please finish it, then. Well, no. Uh, for years in the comic books, Martian Manhunter was obsessed with Oreo cookies. And he was just always eating Oreo cookies. But then Oreo, like, was it Nabisco? I don't know. Whoever owns yeah. that. I don't know if they threatened to sue or they just said, like, hey, stop doing that. <laughs> so they changed it to Choco cookies. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which they looked like Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, come on, come yeah. on, Nabisco. That <laughs> even shows up in Martian Manhunter's appearances on Smallville. Oh, really? When his first appearance, you just see a shadow and like red glowy eyes, and Clark looks down and there's a half-eaten Oreo on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> a 
guy has good taste in uh, in store-bought cookies. As you mentioned earlier, this ride that uh, Dee takes with this woman that he flags down on the highway, Rosemary. Well, there are these moments of connection between them. Yeah, it's this yeah. weird, weird tug of war of like tension and connection. You know, he seems dangerous and unhinged, but then she brings up the humanity in him and they bond and then... Then he says something that makes it look like he's going to fly off the handle, and then he comes down. And it's just such a tense issue. It is. It is. And then at some point, oh, here's the panel right here. He He's holding a gun on her at first, and then he just puts the gun right on the dashboard, you know, where she could easily grab it if she wanted yeah. to. But it kind of lulls you into this false sense of security, thinking, oh, you know, he's... Yeah, she's going to get through to him, and yes. he's, he's going to calm down and realize that he was wrong. <laughs> Right, right. And then... Uh, and he fucking guns her down. <laughs> he does, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Such a gut punch of an ending. It is. You're just like, oh, oh, I thought maybe he was going to let her drive away, but that is not the case at all. And so basically, I, I guess I didn't understand this part. So basically, Dr. D, John D, put some type of security code on Dreams Ruby so that when he goes to the storage unit to get it and he picks it up, it basically... Like locks him out. Yeah. I would say it's probably more like a spell than a security code. It spells it backwards. It's not like there's a little access panel. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> huh, I swore it was one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> or is it five, four, three, two, one? <laughs> Do you want to talk about how this leads into, because the very next thing is... Yeah, 24-hour diner. Yeah, so he, Dr. D gets his ruby and then leaves. And Well, and that's another thing. We keep saying Destiny and or D. The character's name is is John D and his like supervillain name is Dr. Destiny, which I don't think is ever actually said in here. The Justice League call him that, but it's not like Sandman is like, I shall stop you, Dr. Destiny. <laughs> I think he mentions it at some point in his conversation with Rosemary, the woman that oh, gives yeah. him the ride. Because he talks about he has kids to change his name because his mom didn't didn't like him. <laughs> he didn't like the fact that he was a supervillain. Right. She disapproved. <laughs> yeah. He gets the ruby, and then he decides to, uh, sorry, John D. gets the ruby and decides to go, like, test it out in a 24-hour diner, which leads to the next issue, which is called 24 Hours, which is uh, just visceral horror for <laughs> 40 pages, however long it is. Right in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do we also want to talk a little bit about the fan film? 24 Hours, the issue, has all these disparate souls in this diner, each of them kind of living their own individual lives, and you get to hear some of their thoughts and feelings and whatnot, and you find that D is just sitting in the corner kind of watching it all, and then he slowly starts to manipulate events to get the people to kind of go crazy and then do what he wants them to do, and it turns into a, a whole lot of uh, violence and sex and... The insanity of the gem starts affecting people outside of the diner. That you see stuff on the television about. Well, there's that, there's that puppet show. The guy teaching <laughs> kids how to slit their wrists. Yeah. God damn it! It's so <laughs> insane. <laughs> so morbid. You're like. <laughs> it's a good example of Morpheus, even though this is his story of him like totally taking yeah. the backseat. He's only in like one panel, I think, yeah. in this issue. <laughs> he shows up at the very end. Exactly. Like you said before, it is, it's total horror and uh, in the vein of kind of like, like Stephen King in terms of, oh, here are these 
ordinary, everyday people who you probably walk past a thousand times and you don't think anything about them because you're so busy with the weaving pattern of your own life, who uh, turns out they have their little secrets. As it gets farther and farther along, some of those secrets are very dark and disturbing. Yeah, yeah it reminded me, uh, just that kind of you know one locked location, it reminded me of like a Saw movie or something. In 2017, there was a fan film directed by Evan Henderson and Nicholas Brown that just adapted the single issue. And the, the movie's called Sandman 24-Hour Diner. And it's it's available to watch on YouTube for free. It's like, what is it, like half an hour long? Yeah. Apparently, its budget was only $65,000. And I would strongly recommend if you're a fan of Sandman or if you're just a fan of, of weird horror to check it out. Because, like I said, it's it's a direct adaptation, and it's really well done. It, it feels like this could be a, a short film on a DC Comics DVD or something. You know? Exactly, exactly. Like if if the live action Sandman comes out on Netflix, and for whatever reason one day they put that on DVD, then this should be a short that's included. Yeah. And it looks like fun. Like it looks like it kind of reminds you of what looks like would be the joys of guerrilla filmmaking, yeah, so to speak. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, apparently they filmed it in a real diner, too, over, looks like, four nights. <laughs> it's <laughs> called Ted's Restaurant in Scarborough, Toronto. Oh, it was Canadian, huh? Yeah. Well, I don't know, they filmed it in Canada. Cool. I can't speak to anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the only, the only change they made between the comic and the short is they added a, an animated sequence towards the end to kind of explain why Dream wasn't more active in the story. There's a scene of him trying to get to John D as he's attacked by the nightmare creations of the, the people in the diner. And then he's saved by his sister and shows up at the very end, just like the issue. But yeah, definitely worth watching. It's, it's really well done. My uh, hat's off to Evan and Nicholas. You're here. <laughs> and then the, the next issue... Probably of all of the issues in this book, um, the next issue is probably my least favorite. Oh, really? Sand Fury. Just because, I mean, it just, it just wraps everything up. Mm-hmm. It's uh, D and Dream have kind of their battle of wills, and Dream tricks him into breaking the ruby. D thinks that that's where, that that would kill Dream, and instead it, it unleashes his power. Like, the, the ruby was kind of holding his power instead of uh, vice versa. You know, like D thought it was like his life force instead of his power. So it breaks, and then he sends him back to Arkham. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of an interesting point, that he does get sent back to Arkham yeah. instead of, you know, Dream just crushing him like a fly. Yeah. And it kind of, well, it does fall in line with, um, in uh, 24 hours, um D uses the ruby and says, tell me my fortune. And the three women that are trapped there kind of turn into the fates. And they start off by telling him, you know, you you have no future. Madness and and four walls is what awaits you. And he doesn't like the sound of that. So he's like, no, tell me my future. And they basically lie to him and like, oh, yeah, you (laughs) hold the power of dreams and you're going to crush him. Which is not what ends up happening. But there is, I kind of like this part here at the end, though, it's this, almost funny where Dream is taking Dee back to Arkham and they're mm-hmm. walking through the halls and Scarecrow jumps yeah. out and he's like, boo! And he's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, because you see Scarecrow and they, when he breaks out of Arkham as he's like pretending to kill himself 
so that he can like scare the guards when they come in. And then they go back to Arkham and they scarecrow again. Like, ah, ha, ha, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe it, it feels like a, a tongue in cheek nudge, nudge to every time a supervillain escapes from Arkham yeah. Asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Worst security in the world. <laughs> like they're just roaming the halls and doing hijinks. Yeah. It's a good conclusion to that story. I mean, it like wraps everything up and it, it's a logical, I guess, end point for that. To me, it feels like that didn't need to be a whole issue, I guess. Oh. Like it could have been condensed into half of an issue or you know, tacked onto the end of 24-hour diner or whatever. And it, fe- it feels weird, too, that after the events of 24 hours that he gets off so lightly. Just, uh, you know, he just tortured these people for a whole day and then had them die in horrific ways. Not to mention the influence that the ruby had on the rest of the world. So who knows how many people he actually killed. (laughs) And then, uh, no, just go back to your cell. I I think this goes back to, like I mentioned, his uh, evolution in the story. Because that didn't affect him personally. Right. So he's just like, you know, whatever, just give me my fucking ruby back and you can go back to your cell. The end. I would have liked to have seen that revisited later. Like maybe he comes back to Dr. Destiny and he's like... Like, you're way too dangerous to be here. I'm going to fucking lock you away in the dreaming somewhere. <laughs> Put you in a box yeah. inside my mind. That's a good point. Yes, it seems that basically he's like, oh, well, you helped me get all my power back. Thank you so much. You yeah. know? <laughs> On with your business good now. Good boy. <laughs> and then, like, yeah, like it says here, you know, everyone either falls asleep or they wake up and, oh, yeah. all better now. So refreshed. <laughs> After all this chaos. And then that leads to the final issue of the volume called Sound of Her Wings, yes. which is of this story collection that's arguably the most well-known and the most beloved. It introduces the character of death. It's a very personal story. Just a brother and sister chatting, getting reacquainted. Dream follows death around on her, <laughs> making her rounds. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this was one of the... Well, this was one of the Sandman issues that was the most impactful for me because I came to Sandman pretty late in life, probably like mid to late 20s. And a coworker and I were talking comic books and he was like, oh yeah, have you ever read Sandman? And I told him that I had not. And he said, we have to rectify that right away. And he had, oh, I can't remember, like a super edition. Those absolute editions with giant ones. exactly. And he let me borrow it. The sound of her wings, like when you come to... Death, like the actual character of Death in here, and you look at her, I mean, my first reaction was, oh, you know, because, again, so yeah. not what you associate. Yeah, she looks like a, like a cool goth chick and uh, not the, the shrouded grim reaper <laughs> that we're so used to. <laughs> right. And she's funny and yeah. she's optimistic and she has, she has a lot of empathy for the people that she goes to, like, yeah. she goes to kill, basically, or like, your time is up. And it's funny, there's like one part in here where, because in this epilogue, Dream is just not feeling like himself after his quest. Like, he's like, what's next? You know, she's there to snap him out of it. And like you said, he goes with her on her rounds. She goes to collect some soul. They're watching this stand-up comic perform. And uh, uh, Dream is trying to talk to her. And she's like, shh, you know, I want to hear this lady's (laughs) bit. Like, she's genuinely interested in the people that that she comes to collect, even though, you know, it's their last moments and they don't know it. I like the old guy who's like, I was always told if I said this prayer that I'd get to heaven. Like, is that true? 
And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> that's, not, that's not why I'm here. I don't care about heaven or hell or whatever comes next. Like, I don't know anything about that. I'm, I'm just here to, to make the transition for you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's like, so I'm dead. Now what? And she's like, now so you find out, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And I, I love how the story is, is very wholesome, but there's that darkness on the edges, you know? Like, there's that moment without dialogue where you see the mother put her baby down for a nap and then walk out of the room, and then Death walks in and picks up the baby and, like, cuddles with it and then walks out, and then you see the mother walk in back into the room, like, screaming. <laughs> and it's just, like, it it's the reality of that, how it plays it so... So normally, death is a part of life, and that's that's it. That's literally the end the end of the conversation. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just another part of life, and that's such a foreign concept in specifically in like American culture, where death is not to be spoken of, and it's something that's always to be feared and hushed and all that. Whereas in this, it's it's just a another aspect of everyone's life. And I think it's later in the series. It might be during brief lives where somebody asks death about their like their time span you know and he was like I, I thought i had a pretty good length don't you and she goes hey man you get what everyone gets you get a lifetime very well said oh and uh, uh who who drew her because that's something i wanted to touch on too it wasn't keith it was no, it was dringenberg dringenberg yeah. okay because dringenberg used to be the inker on the book and then after sam keith left he became the penciler okay yes She's based on a real person. Yeah. We, yeah, we had talked about that actually in the first episode, but I cut it out for time. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, she's, she's based on Cinnamon Hadley, who was a friend of his, apparently. And when you Google Cinnamon Hadley, death, like the images that come up, there's like a close-up portrait of her as a young woman, and you're like, oh yeah, that, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> very striking. I had a friend in college named Caitlin who used to say peachy keen, just like that. And she looked a bit like that. I, I, she'd never read a comic book in her life. Because <laughs> it was one of those where it almost seemed like, like you clearly modeled your personality on this character. But nope, that's just the way she was. <laughs> Excellent. I wonder if she ever ended up reading it. Doubt it. <laughs> just not her cup of tea. But it is, uh, like you said, it's a personal story, regardless of what your beliefs are, whether, you know, you do believe in an afterlife or you don't. Um, there is part of me and it's like, well, you know, if death was this personification, like if this actually was entity that you met in your last moments, like death doesn't seem that scary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what I like about it, that idea that, that it's okay to die <laughs> you know it, we're all gonna do it anyway one way or another and i i read somewhere that neil gaiman said that this is the this is the edition this last one where he felt like he found his voice mm. you know writers are always really critical of their own work but yeah it, it comes through it comes through loud and clear yeah you see that especially in the later volumes how it becomes more untethered becomes more episodic. I mean, there, there is the overarching narrative, but there's less issue-to-issue storylines. The first two, first three volumes, Preludes of no and Nocturnes, Doll's House, and Dream Country, have recently been adapted to an audio series by Amazon, Audible. The voice cast for that has been amazing, like James McAvoy playing Dream, and you mentioned earlier Andy Serkis playing 
Matthew, and uh, Riz Ahmed playing the Corinthian. And for the longest time, there's been Sandman movie or television show in development for I, since like the mid-90s. There's been some form of development on this. And just recently, I think within the last two years, Netflix acquired the rights to Sandman and has been actively working on a TV series. And it would have already been filmed and released if not for the COVID outbreak. <laughs> and now it's just kind of in a holding pattern. And I don't know if the roles have been cast or not, but it's they've just been waiting to make any major announcements. So for the last, hell, for as long as I've been reading this comic, there have been fan casts and who should play who. So I thought it would be fun to talk through our own personal favorite choices for specific Sandman characters. After you, sir. Well, for me, for Dream, my first choice is, well, not always, but in the last 10, 15 years, it's always been Benedict Cumberbatch. Especially, like, in Sherlock, they've got a very similar vibe, that kind of selfish, slowly growing into being a full human. <laughs> and, but, he, but he's also got that gaunt look, looks fine with, with longish, puffy hair. <laughs> and he's got really, the, the biggest thing for me, though, is he's got dark eyes. He does. And I think that's really important because Dream's eyes are just black voids. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be really hard to pull off a natural look for somebody that doesn't naturally have just dark, weird pupils. (laughs) That's a good point. Because the comic books, like... You know, they're able to still draw his eyes very expressive when he needs to be. It's harder to get across when you have to wear contacts. That would be a good choice. Who's your dream? Oh, well, on that subject, I have several. And I kind of went... I kind of went a little bit crazy because at first I was like, well, I shouldn't put him on the list because he's too old now, but fuck it, I'm going to put him on the list. <laughs> um, my very first choice was Doug Jones. Doug Oh, yeah. I yeah. could see that. Well, yeah, I get it. Just because of how tall he is and what he is able to do under prosthetics and makeup. Bill Skarsgård mm-hmm. was next. I can see that. <laughs> this one's dead, so it'll never happen, but I still look at him and I'm like, oh, yeah, it, it, he has the look. John Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a man of, of many faces. A chameleon, really. Um, no, Al, uh, Elaine Delon. He's not dead. Oh, I thought he was dead. No, oh, he's not dead. No, really? <laughs> yeah. He's still alive? I just, I just watched Purple Noon a few weeks ago and like looked him up. And yeah, he's still alive. He's just old. <laughs> oh, forgive me, sir. I'm so glad you're still with us. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, he's, he's too old for the role, but... Uh, a young, uh, yeah, Elaine. Like in the '60s, he he would have been great. Absolutely. And last, <laughs> last but not least, uh, Killian Murphy. Yeah, I can see that too. I get, uh, yeah, for sure. But I could also see a lot of different roles in this series for him. True. You could even go against type and have him be uh, destruction. You could. Yeah, you could. I'm trying to picture him as a redhead. He is a redhead. Killian Murphy. Yeah. Is he really? No. Yeah. It's just dark red. No. Unless he's like, he's been lying to us this whole time and he goes to the salon. Have you seen, uh, what's that movie called? It's, it's pretty red. Reddish. What's that movie called? Uh, the first one he was in, 28 Days Later. Because at the beginning, when he's in the hospital, he's got a bright red beard. Oh, I didn't think about that. There's some red there. Okay. A little bit. Regardless. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, <laughs> How about, uh, do you have the Corinthian? You know, I do, but I'm with you on that one, like we were talking about earlier. My first choice for that is Michael Fassbender. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just think he would look so incredibly creepy. He already has a big smile, like when he grins with his whole mouth. Yeah. I remember seeing him in Jonah Hex, where he plays this weird got like Maori tattoos all over his face. I totally forgot he was but in he's, that. But he's British. <laughs> or he's Irish in it. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember seeing him in that where he, he plays like a psychopath and thinking like, wow, he'd make a really good Corinthian. And that was 10 years ago. <laughs> so, yes, Michael Fassbender, we hope you are available, please. How about Cain and Abel? Aha. Well, for Cain, I was thinking either Andy Circus, he'd be a great Cain, or uh, Rory Gleason. Which is Dominal Gleason's brother. Rory Gleason? Yeah, he's been like in one movie. Oh, okay. Um, he's kind of an actor, but not really. Gotcha. But like, if you look at him, you're like, yeah, they could stick a beard on him and grow out his chops, and mm-hmm. he would have that kind of gleefully homicidal look to yeah. him. <laughs> um, who are your choices for that one? Wait, well, who was your able? Oh, pardon me, able. My able, huh, that's actually funny. It was either uh, Riz Ahmed. Or Ray Park. Hmm, interesting. Because I always picture Abel as a big fat guy. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, he is a big fat guy. <laughs> He's a little bit pudgy. I, I don't know about a little bit pudgy. <laughs> Here, let me look him up. Okay, all right, yes. Yeah, dude, he's a big fat guy. <laughs> <laughs> he is. But, like, just based on... Um, there we go. That's the picture. I have that picture of him in my bathroom. Oh, yeah, That's you good. do. Um, anyway, yeah. So, I, yeah, I've always seen him as... The, there's this actor. I can't remember his name. But there's this movie in the 60s called Blast of Silence. It's like a noir film. And there's this dude in it that's, like, obsessed with rats. And he's a black market gun seller. And the dude that plays he's this big, fat, sloppy guy with a big, bushy beard. He totally looks like... Abel. <laughs> and I, I wish that guy were still alive, because, I mean, again, this guy was probably in his 50s, in the 50s, oh. so he's he's long dead, Unless. but uh, he would have been a great Abel. Let me look him up real quick. Oh, yeah. No, that's not him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. There, there he oh. is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Specifically, that picture of Abel drinking on the poster looks like it was just sketched from that guy. <laughs> it does. It totally does. But anyway, so my Kane and Abel, my Kane is John Glover. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like, so back in the 80s and 90s when Sandman was written, John Glover was in his, like, 30s. But now John Glover in, Glover in his, like, 60s, I think he looks exactly like Kane. And he's got that weird, booming voice that would be great. <laughs> and then for Abel, I want somebody, because, I mean, Abel is killed continually. You know, Kane's always killing him. So I want somebody that, that can make that not be weird or depressing. <laughs> so I want, some, I want Jack Black. I want some, somebody funny and goofy. Who, it's okay if he gets his head cut off. And then the next issue, he's fine. <laughs> yeah, poor, poor Abel. <laughs> well, Jack Black would be a great one. On the subject of Abel, like, I chose Riz Ahmed because I think his face kind of looks like Abel. Like, all you gotta do is drink milkshakes for a month, yeah. and you can put on the weight. And Ray Park, just because I think Ray Park, he's got the face, and, you know, Ray Park is known as the badass king of stunts and fights in the movie world. Um, so I just think it would be fun and interesting to, and he has the physicality to, you know, 
to die in really dramatic <laughs> ways. And I just think it would be uh, a change of pace to see him as this kind of stuttering, timid character. I just think it would be it would be a change of pace to see Ray Park as this, you know, this kind of sad little guy who has this pet gargoyle and he just wants to go back to when his brother didn't fucking kill him all the time. <laughs> I can't see it at all, but I respect your decision. Okay, fair enough. So how about Lucian? Do you have a Lucian? I only have one Lucian, and that is Stephen Merchant. Oh, that's a good one. What about you? I went against type. I mean, obviously, uh, it's got to be a British person with some, some class <laughs> and dignity. But I went with Stephen Fry. Oh, well, that would work. Because I love his voice, and I can see him as that like put-upon librarian who knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> he just carries on with his duties regardless. Well, that'd be a good choice. How, how about, do you have a hob, Gadling? Um, hmm, I do, but I was, this is just like the closest I could come, and I'm not sure if he'd be able to pull it off, but um, I was thinking of Josh Gad. Josh Gad? Oh, yeah. I can see that. I could also see him as Abel. Oh, yeah. yeah <clears throat> you can do it, too. I wrote, <laughs> my casting for hob was some dumpy redhead. <laughs> that would work too. And I landed on Scott Grimes, who is on the Orville. Oh, yeah. No, I changed that to Scott Grimes. <laughs> <laughs> he would work perfectly. He's kind of a dumpy redhead on that show. He is. He is. You just see like that dude, but immortal. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Maybe put a few more pounds on him. Yeah. Oh, but, but it can fluctuate because you know, uh, I'm sure. Uh, Sure, Hob has gained and lost some weight over the years. Probably. <laughs> In flux like that. <laughs> All right, going back to the endless, do you have a death? Oh, several of them. Okay. Um, and some of these people are dead. Um, first <laughs> one. This would fit. <laughs> very fitting. First one is uh, Gene Seberg. I know that name. You do. I know that. Um, Breathless. Oh, okay. Jean Luc Goddard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Godard. Godard. Excuse me. Godard. I just think that um, her yeah, her bone structure, I'm not sure if she could pull off the Susie Sue haircut, but yeah, she's got the pale complexion and she's got the bone structure for it. And she's got the slightness. I thought I just saw her in something recently, but I can't remember. I don't know. Whatever. Probably did. <laughs> uh, my next choice was Lizzie Kaplan. Yeah. Um, I like Lizzie Kaplan a lot. She's cool. She is cool. Uh, Zoe Kravitz. Hey, that was mine. Was it? Oh. That was Zoe Kravitz. Reminds <laughs> <Four laughs> <minds> think alike. <laughs> um, and last but not least, uh, Zazie Beats. Yeah, I like I like Zoe Kravitz for death. Something about her like cool aloofness. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that might be a bad thing. It might might be bad to have a death that's too cool. Which she kind of has that vibe of being a little bit better than you know the average person. I feel like death needs a warmth to her aloofness. That. So I don't know. Yeah, she might have to change it up for that one. Yeah. All right, what about destruction? Destruction, uh, this is obvious, uh, Donald Gleason. Am I saying Don his first name right? I think it's Donald. I think it's pronounced Donald. Donald? Is it? Yeah, okay. It's D O M N. Yeah, I for years said Brendan Gleason, uh, his, his father, but instead I went with the other Gleason. <laughs> I went Brian Gleason. 
Also have, good Have you choice. seen him? I have not, but if he looks anything like his brother and his dad. Donald and Brian play Cain and Abel in the movie Mother. Oh, okay, yeah, then I have seen him. Also, very good choice. Yeah. Yep. Because I like him because he's, he's a little stockier than, than Donald. Yeah. He's got a little more thickness to him, and I think that Destruction uh, has some weight. He does, yeah. He actually has a kind of a... A little bit of a rough-hewn look to him. Yeah. Well, that's a good choice. What about Desire? Um, only two choices for that one. Um, the obvious one being Ezra Miller. Mm-hmm. And uh, my other one is Asia Kate Dillon. Mm. I looked into both of those, actually. I don't like Ezra Miller. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like him as a person. So, <laughs> so I, it would be hard for me to watch somebody that is supposed to be like more desirable than any, you know, like it's fucking desire. Right. <laughs> if you can't look at that character and feel something, then it's not going to work. And I don't know, just for me, I don't, I don't know that connection with him. Asia Kate, have you seen John Wick 3? Yes. Actually, that's, that's what made me think yeah. of uh, just re-watched them the for this day. role. Yeah. And I, I see it, but at the same time, I don't know. I just feel like, like short hair. <laughs> like that's all, that's all they have. Because I don't, I don't see, again, there's that, that kind of coldness. There is, but you know that this could be the chance for them to, uh, to flex their wings, you know, to try something different. Do, uh, do, have I ever told you my whole hypothesis about Desire? I don't think you have. So Desire is drawn to be both male and female. Right. And Dream, and really the Endless, and the whole call Desire, but sister-brother he or she, like, all the time. I have a hypothesis that the dominant, that, that whenever whenever you look at desire, the dominant traits that you see are based on your own feelings. Because to me, desire has always been an androgynous female. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if other people feel that way, too. Because <laughs> obviously, it's not, it's supposed to be, a, like, an equal mix male-female. Mm-hmm. But every time I see desire, I see an androgynous female. And I wonder if heterosexual women see an androgynous male, or if there are some people that see desire as, as that perfect mix. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's a, uh, that's a sound theory. I share it too. Um, my other choice for desire, and I, I left her off the list because, no offense, Christy, my love, no one's ever heard of her. My other choice was uh, a friend of mine and a L.A. burlesque dancer, uh, Mercury Troy, and there's this great picture of her. I wish I could find it. But when I saw it, I immediately thought of Desire because she's a very feminine-looking woman. But uh, for a routine that she did, she had one side of her head hair pulled back. And she's got very thick, gorgeous brown hair. And, like, brown hair cascading down over one breast. And one half of her face made up, but it was done in a really subtle way, so it was very feminine. And then the other half of her just almost looked like a guy. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's it right there. Well, maybe that's the way to go. Somebody, uh, somebody that's not famous. Because the only other person I can think of is uh, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, what was your choice for Desire? I didn't have one. Oh. Because like, I thought about Tilda Swinton, but I feel like she's too old at this point. The thing about The Endless is I feel like they have to look, they always have to look somewhat young, for lack of a better word. Like, they have to look prime, <laughs> air quotes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> With the exception of maybe despair. Yeah. Yeah. Which, do you have a despair? Um. <laughs> For those who don't know, despair is is just a naked old woman. Like a, a, 
uh, she looks like a fertility idol, you know? Almost, <laughs> yes, yes. Like if the chubby, naked, white, pasty old woman. The original version of Despair had tattoos all over her. Second, Despair doesn't have any. She just has, like, some scars from her hook that she's always fucking around with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have one for Despair, because I was trying to think, like, who, who could you get... Because that's one thing about The Endless is that we all talk about, like, you know, oh, dream and desire and death and destruction and how cool and, like, delirium and how, you know, beautiful or cool or quirky they are. But, yeah, like, despair is really the one that when you see her, you go, ah! Um, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I'm I'm trying to think of, of who you could, who could emote and act under all that makeup. So I had one. My my thinking was that the character would need to be adapted a bit, maybe just change the look somewhat, um, because I don't I don't know if any any actor or actress is just gonna want to be naked the whole time, even if they're wearing like a fat suit. Like I just feel like that's a tough sell. Um, so either either change the way that the character is shot or tweak the way that they're that they look. But my pick was Rachel House. Have you ever seen Thor Ragnarok? She is the Grandmaster's sidekick, Topaz. Oh, oh, yes! I'd love her in that. <laughs> yeah. She's also in, she's in all, I think, all of Taika Waititi's movies. Like she's in Hunt for the Wilder People and Eagle vs. Shark. And she has a really good way of, of being, like, shrill and hateful and annoying. <laughs> and then also warm and emotive. And she, I, I could see her as being depressing, just void of charisma, but also being interesting and, and somewhat charismatic. <laughs> oh, that's a good, that's a good choice. And she's got a really great voice. She does. She does. She was uh, one of the shining lights in Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Okay. And I, I mean, you could put her in a fat suit or, or just change the character to, to, I don't know. I, I think it would be interesting too, since one version of, of Despair is covered in tattoos to have her maybe have like Maori tattoos all over her face or body or something. Um, use that to kind of hide the just the, the weird big naked design of the character. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So I feel like that would be a physically demanding role too. Yeah. Like with all the prosthetics and like you said, unless they change something up. I mean, Despair spends a lot of time like hunched over. She's crab walking almost. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Way to think ahead on that. So how about what else do we have? Oh, do you want to um, do John D? Yeah, I don't. I don't have one for him, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Jeremy Davies, obviously. <laughs> uh, I think Jeremy Davies is too good looking, honestly. I mean, I haven't seen him in the Arrowverse crossover, but I think when I look at him, I don't think you know, ah, scary, mm-hmm. nasty, you know. So who's yours? Um, well, here you go. And you just go ahead and pass judgment. I would vote for either Jesse Plemons. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Or uh, Charles Barker. Who's Charles Barker? He was Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad. And oh. he was in two, The Blacklist. Well, two Breaking Bad people. Jesse Plemons was on Breaking oh, Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, I could see those... Was the only other one Skinny Pete? You said. Yeah. I don't think he has the acting acting chops for the role. No. At all. I 
Breaking Bad was fine, and he was fine in it, but I felt like he was just reading lines the whole time. <laughs> like, I didn't feel like he was acting. So, <laughs> so maybe not him. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I get it. I get the look. Like, I understand that, because he's a skinny, weird-looking dude. <laughs> he is. Yes, yes. You I would go with Doug Jones for him, actually. Also a good choice. Yeah. Or somebody that can act under prosthetics. Or if you're going to do it like that, then it would have to be... A, you're just going to have to deal with prosthetics if you're going to directly adapt the character. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, how about uh, Delirium? Delirium. I didn't have one for Delirium because... I mean, Delirium is Tori Amos. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just the character. Um, so it's really hard for me to see anyone else as her. At one point, I had an idea... I think I maybe had like Sophie Turner or something like that maybe. in the role, and but have her play Delirium, and then have flashbacks to when she was Delight, oh. and have Tori Amos play Delight. <laughs> I would watch that because Delirium, and for those who don't know, Delirium used to be known as Delight, and then through some traumatic process, changed to Delirium, and uh, I think it would be it would be cool to, to call back to that. It would. It would be neat to have that flashback. Um, I'm going to read mine off, and you tell me what you think. Uh, Florence Pugh. Is it Pugh? Yeah, I don't know. I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, Shailene Woodley. Yeah, I can see that. Or, this one might be a little bit out there, Winnie Harlow. I don't know who that is. She's actually a supermodel. Huh. And she's got, a, I'm going to mispronounce it, please forgive me, Vitalago. It's a skin disease. Um, but I just think that might be a striking departure. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, has she acted at all? I think, yeah, she a little bit. Like, nothing that I, anyone would remember. Um, and, you know, only if she could do the job. Like, you know, if, if they were to meet with her and she had the acting chops for it, I think she could take the character in a direction that we weren't expecting. Yeah. But, of those, I would go with Florence Pugh, Pugh, however you pronounce it. Because she's, from what I've seen her in, she's a really, really good committed actor. She is. <clears throat> How about, do you have Matthew? <laughs> this is kind of a cheat. But yeah, Andy Circus. Like, yeah, <laughs> just does such a good job. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I went with Taika Waititi. Oh, also, yeah. Because yeah. I, I like his, I mean, he's basically become, as a, become known as a voice actor now, aside from directing. But you know, he played Korg in two movies, and he played uh, IG-11 in Star Wars. And it sounds like he's been cast as a, as a, in a vocal role in Suicide Squad. So, I mean, if that's going to be his thing, then, yeah, I want to see him as Matthew. <laughs> right, yeah, he would be great. Is he Weasel in Suicide Squad? No, that's uh, Sean Gunn. Oh, well, I don't know. Who knows? He may be voicing him. He, they haven't announced who he's voicing. The... Uh, Consensus is probably that he's going to be voicing King Shark. Oh. Because they've specifically said that Steve Ag is only playing King Shark's body. Oh, okay. So, who knows? Um, who else we got? Did you come up with anybody for Destiny? No. Destiny's a cipher. Just he really put, is. Put any big dude in a hood. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking Shamar Moore, just because yeah, of his height. Did we miss anybody? Well, we missed lots, but... I don't know if we... Did we get all the endless? I don't know. Um, what about Murph Pumpkinhead? Oh, Murph. <laughs> Murph Pumpkinhead. Well, Killian Murphy could do that, don't you think? 
No. Because <laughs> <laughs> I want I want Merv Pumpkinhead to just be CGI. Oh, know? okay. okay. I mean, he's a fucking like skinny ass scarecrow with a big pumpkin head. So I, I don't want to see like a costume of that. But for the voice, Bill Burr. Okay, yeah, yeah. I could, I could just see Merv, like, getting pissed off at Matthew and being like, oh, put your head through that fucking wall! <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I think he would be better at it than Killian Murphy in that respect. Yep. I mean, physically, Killian Murphy, but uh, I just I just don't see him doing the voice. No, no. I hear him doing the voice. Um, what's, I would say either Bill Burr, and I should know this actor's name because he's been in pretty much everything that Joss Whedon has done. He voiced the android in... Um, Alan Tudyk? Yes. Yeah, he's a, he's a good voice actor as well. So yeah, him or Bill Burr would do great. But I, for some reason, something about Merv, I just always hear like that either just a thick accent. I, I don't care if it's New York or Boston or Australian. You know, I just, <laughs> I just want a thick accent coming out of that weird body. <laughs> it should be distinct, yes, because he does have. I, I think it would be hard to do Merv Pumpkinhead uh, without referencing Return to Oz. Yeah, yeah, because he looks exactly like that character. He does. <laughs> what came first, Merv or Return to Oz? I have no idea. I mean, the Oz books were you know, predate Sandman by a hell of a lot. True. I don't know if that pumpkin dude was in any of the. Oz books because I haven't read any. What about uh, what about Clericon? Oh, of the elf fella. <laughs> Clericon. Oh, I do not have one for that. Who do you have? I don't know. It just dawned on me. <laughs> <laughs> You're really trying to catch me off my guard get, here. <laughs> uh, get fucking what's his name? Uh, Orlando Bloom. <laughs> just have Legolas in there. <laughs> Return to the role. <laughs> or uh, what's her name? Nuala. Is that her name? I the, think the so. Little, the little girl that becomes dream slave. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. How about Millie Bobby Brown? She would be good. She's British. Did you know that? I didn't know she was British. I did not know that. No. Really? Those damn Brits, they're so good at everything. I would say, yeah, Millie Bobby Brown would be good. I, she might be too old now, and I cannot pronounce her name for the life of me, but she was... She was in Beasts of the Southern Wild. Well, Janae Wallace. Yes. That's weird. I was just about to say that. <laughs> That's why it was at the tip of my tongue. <laughs> well done. Great pronunciation there. Yeah. yeah. I think she would be good. Yeah, she would be. And we haven't seen her for a while, it feels yeah. like. Yeah, I have no idea what she was like, 10 when that came out, maybe. I don't know. Maybe she was 20. I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, I think, I think she was like 8. Oh, okay. She was really young. Yeah, she could be Nala. I don't know. I don't know if there's any others. Mad Hetty. Oh, Mad Hetty. I don't know. I kind of want to see Dame Judy Dench do some slumming yeah, magic. You know, I could see Dame Judy Dench. Daisy Ridley. I'm gonna go against type. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Just totally slum yeah. her out. <laughs> Daisy Ridley made up to look like a chimney sweep in uh, in Mary Poppins. Go blimey! <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Make her, give her something on the end of the spectrum. Okay. Yeah, that's all I have. Me too. I think we. Oh, have... what about Lucifer? Oh gosh. Tom Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. You're funny. You're funny man. I think he's fine. He does his best with the role. <laughs> I mean, the show's not great. It, it's honestly probably not even good. But uh, I think his charisma is the only reason that that show has lasted five seasons. I would agree with you. 
And if I take a moment to get over my snobbery, um, <laughs> I have to admit that I had to ask myself, if I had never, ever, ever, ever read any of the Lucifer comics, would I enjoy this show? And there was part of me that thinks, again, based on his charm, that perhaps I would. But that also shouldn't be a requirement. <laughs> it shouldn't be that this is only good if you've never read the source material. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it shouldn't be. And I, I mean, it's objectively, it's uh, like a really boring premise. Taking Lucifer and turning him, in, turning him into a, a cop's sidekick is just weird and dumb. And it's, it, it's cheap, you know? It's just to keep costs down. I get why they did it. I think it's dumb. <laughs> and I think it completely... Uh, hobbles the storytelling potential, but I still understand, and I feel like, given that, the show has done the best that they can with that shitty premise. <laughs> and especially the actors. I think the actors are uniformly pretty good. Especially him. I mean, the show, again, is carried by him. Wait, speaking of, Kane, Kane is on that show. Is he? Yeah. What season? Uh, season three. Played by Tom Welling. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I stopped watching after season two. I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. But, okay. Yeah, Superman's Tom Welling plays hmm. plays Kane. Well, I know I'm probably going to have to watch, because in the future we will most likely do an episode on Lucifer, oh, yeah. and uh, I will feel compelled to bring myself up to date on that uh, hot dumpster fire. What's going on with <laughs> with uh, Chloe Decker and Detective Douche? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Again, like you said, it's not the actor's fault because they have the least amount of say in how a show is written, produced, all that stuff. But, oh, Lord almighty. It hurts, it hurts. Anyway. But I can, I can see Tilda Swinton as Lucifer now, though. Yeah, oh yeah. Even, even now. Even now, absolutely. Um, I, I would welcome that. I would welcome that very much. It would be like a nice homecoming. Yeah, that would be a fun casting inversion since she played Gabriel and Constantine. And, mm. uh, yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's my thoughts. So is that it? Are we done? Do we have anything else to talk about with Sandman? What do you want to do next? What do you think is coming up next? I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Stay fucking, tuned. I don't fucking care. <laughs> when it gets to the end, I'm just like, like let's, just, let's just cut it now. Let's just end mid-sentence. <laughs> and done. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, Follow us on uh, Twitter, at Vertigo Voices. Download Vertigo Voices on all your major podcast carriers, because there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we come in many varieties and many ways. Yes, please, uh, leave us a review. Tell us how you think we did. Yeah. And keep listening. Yeah, the, the reviews are helpful, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I assume. Everyone wants five stars, so give us five stars. <laughs> Or, I mean, if you're not going to do five stars, then what's the point of reviewing? <laughs> right, right, exactly. If you hate us and you think we suck, please just pass us right on by. <laughs> or just keep listening, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, because eventually we're going to say something that you agree with and that you like. And wouldn't that make you the bigger man to, to just suffer through our insane rantings and then eventually get to something that you like? To me, that would mean that you're the winner and we're the losers. <laughs> <laughs> you stuck with it. You persevered. <laughs> yeah. So keep doing that. <laughs> Please and thank you. All right. Well, we're done then. Goodbye. Bye. Fuck off. <laughs>